everybody. This is Father Tom Provenzano welcoming you to another episode of the Axe Podcast. We have a jam-packed episode this this week, this midweek episode. It runs over an hour, so I uh, I pray for your indulgence. Uh, but I have kind of three topics we'll be hitting. One has to do with the rise of occult practice and witchcraft among millennials. Then uh, the section that I Got a little longer than I thought it was going to be. Uh, some obituaries, of, you know, featuring some uh, prominent celebrities who have passed away in the last month and a half or so. And that got a little long because there were a couple of names that I wasn't expecting to have to talk about or that I didn't know I was going to be talking about before I uh, started organizing it but felt it was a good idea. So, And then um, well, the last part is what the algorithm sent me. And uh, another uh, installment of that recurring uh, that that recurring theme of uh, and ha- this, this having to do with gambling and the prevalence of online gambling. And uh, before we get to all those things, let's get to this. Our our Ave, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace. The Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Mary, help of Christians, pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. About three or four years ago, I saw an article online. It was it was from a mainstream source. I, you know, It's been lost to me. I had printed it out and was going to either write about it or, or or talk about it here on the uh, uh, podcast, and you know, it kept on it kept on kind of getting past me, and I got you know distracted by other things, and now I've I've kind of settled down and decided I think I need to talk about it, uh, but it's I found it very difficult to talk about, and that is this rise of uh, the practice of witchcraft and what are sometimes referred to as as neo pagan rights among uh, millennials and among uh, Gen Z. And the, the reason why I think I find it difficult is that the more I read, and I did look up other articles to try to get a handle on the issue, you know, the, the, the more I read, the more I realized that it's, it's going to bring me down roads uh, that I'm not sure are really healthy or good to, to, to walk down. Because no matter what a practitioner of witchcraft or neo-paganism or whatever title they give to it, no matter what they want to tell you, it, it, it touches on the demonic. And it, it, it touches on you know, dark forces, which wish to undo uh, that which Christ has won for us. And... There's always a hesitancy, or there should be a hesitancy, to bring such topics up because, in a way, it is a the 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 discussion of these things is very fascinating, and many people are very curious about it. I have found in you know teaching religion class, uh, if the topic ever comes up. Uh, and sometimes the, it'll come up from a student bringing it up for the purpose of getting you off your topic, <laughs> to be quite honest with you. But if it comes up, it, it can really begin to dominate the discussion 
because it is very fascinating. And it's it a person can become very easily obsessed psychologically. I'm not talking about demonic obsession, but I'm talking about just psychologically obsessed with this topic. And that itself sort of becomes a tool of the devil and becomes a an entrance way to allow him into our lives. And so really, you know, these things, these matters should only really be talked about, in my humble opinion, uh, sparingly and only when absolutely necessary. And I think this is one of those, but I do think this is one of those times. Also, the more that I read, there were political implications to this. Now, this is not a political podcast. I'm not looking here to, uh, you know, whip one side or the other in this. And again, I'm not referring to specifically, uh, at least not officially, partisan publications. I'm talking about publications like The Atlantic or like Newsweek or like USA Today that in one way or another, all their articles either expressly or more subtly point to the political implications. And the thing is the political implications all tend to go to one side. I'm not saying there aren't, you know, (laughs) I'm not saying there aren't conservative devil worshipers, but it seems like, uh, it seems to be the hot thing, not devil worship exactly, but you know this uh, idea of, of witchcraft, witchcraft and neo paganism, and putting spells on people and binding prayers and stuff like that, seems to have found a home uh, on the progressive side of the aisle. And again, this is not me talking. This is not National Review. Uh, you know, this is not uh, you know pick your favorite uh, you know conservative. Uh, you know, website or commentator. This is not Sean Hannity talking. Uh, this is again. This is the Atlantic. This is uh, USA Today. This is Newsweek. You know, you, you can't get much more mainstream than that. And again, I I question: Do I really want to go down that rabbit hole and then you know start being accused of of being a, a, a you know a uh, you know a spokesman uh, you know for the John Birch Society? Showing my age there. <laughs> I have a bunch of people now Googling what's the John Birch Society. Uh, you know, or, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, a, uh, you know, a spokesperson for, uh, you know, mouthpiece for, for some conservative organization. That's not my, that's not my purpose here. But it's to say that, that the fact that so many young people are, making this choice not simply to reject the Catholic Church in order to enter some other Christian uh, community, not rejecting Christianity, let's say, to embrace some other traditional world religion, and not even rejecting religion, traditional religion, in order to, let's say, live as a secular atheist which is, I think, what a lot of people and a lot of secular atheists thought would happen, uh, is that as religion fades, as organized religion specific, uh, specifically fades, what you would see is this great age of reason uh, develop. And people would put their you know, so-called superstitious ways behind them and organize their, their lives around the principles of pure reason, and rationality. And that's not the way it, it works. 
because we are not computers. We are not purely animal. We certainly have a, an animal aspect to our nature, a carnal aspect to our nature. We don't like to talk about animal because animals, you know, there's a hang-up there about referring to ourselves as animals, and I definitely understand that because we're not animals in that, that brute sense of it, that traditional brute sense of it. But there's no doubt that there is a, a, a biological embodied aspect to our nature. But we're also spirit, and the spirit will not be denied. So basically what's what's happening is that because so many young people, and even not so young people, have, have lost confidence in organized religion and in institutions in general, they're reaching out to these other for these other ways of touching the transcendent and of moving beyond. Uh, but what I would argue with, and what I would say, is that there's a real you know problem here. <laughs> there's a real issue at work, because again, this is not just you know you know this is not just you know choosing Lutheranism over Catholicism. Or this is not just even you know choosing Islam over Christianity, or Judaism, you know over Hinduism. This is kind of a different religion, even of kind, because in those other religions that I've mentioned, and I, I would probably have to leave out the Eastern religions because I'm a I'm not as familiar with them, but I I don't even if I don't think that they fit in exactly to what I'm about to say. Certainly, you know, in the three major monotheistic religions, the idea here is that God is transcendent, God is all-powerful. And in the, in the Christian context, we are reaching out to God, but God is also reaching out to us. And he's, he's trying to make a connection with us. But it's not an equal relationship. God is all-powerful. And in a way, it's for us to meld our wills with the will of God. It's not my will which is the most important. It's God's will. It's not you know, what I want to know and the knowledge that I want to attain that's so important. It's the knowledge that God wants to impart to me that will help lead to my eternal salvation. You know, the Bible... Has a, I should say, it has a lot in it, but it has a lot of things that are actually missing and that are not there and information that it doesn't give us. You know, we don't know what happened to St. Joseph. We don't know what happened to the apostles at the end of the Acts of the Apostles. It just leaves off. You know, after the 15th chapter, we hear nothing about uh, St. Peter, for instance. And, uh, at the end of the book, we just you know leave St. Paul in Rome, and we really are not given any more information on that. Now that you know, as a Catholic, we have also what's called sacred tradition, and you know there is a tradition surrounding uh, you know Peter and Paul being martyred in Rome. That you know we we believe, um, but but nonetheless, it hasn't been given to us. In detail, and those are maybe points that maybe you're not that curious about, or you don't find all that important. But the thing is, there are secrets about, for instance, the end of the world, and about what exactly the new heaven and the new earth are going to look like, and how it's going to function, and what does the resurrection mean. 
what, what, what is it going to mean to live in a in a glorified body? And you know, how are we going to relate with God and relate with one another? You know, Jesus speaks kind of almost in riddles when it comes to this. He doesn't give us a full picture or a, you know a, a full the full story. Part of it, I think. Is, is because it is something that's beyond our imagination. Paul talks about that, you know, eye has not seen, ear has not heard what you know, God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, we can't imagine it. It is something beyond. And no matter what image we try to place on it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to fall short. You know, I was, I was talking with a group a couple of weeks ago about the, you know, about the theology of the body, of John Paul II, and, and one of the things I had to talk about was that you have to be very careful when you, because it's it's using, it can seem sometimes to be using carnal and you know romantic imagery, you know, to describe the relationship, and even sometimes you know, you know quasi sexual imagery, in in talking about the relationship between, you know, uh, or the soul and and God, and what exactly you know it's going to look like in the in the afterlife. I had to be kind of I had to warn the people you can't be overly literal. You know, we're 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 talking here in images and in metaphors. And what the actual reality is going to be is, is something different. And what I would say is that in that case it's it's so intense and you know so incredible that human language couldn't describe it. And is not able to really encapsulate. And if we tried, uh, we'd end up with something rather crude, and we'd be kind of almost selling ourselves short, in a way. But the fact that we, or we, many of us are curious about these things, do want to know about the future. We do have our own wills, and often it's not "Thy will be done." It's my will be done. That's really what we're looking for. You know, and how often even those of us when we pray, how much of it are we really praying that God's will be done in my life? <laughs> and how much of it is God do my will? Right? This is always this is always the temptation and, and this is always the danger that we fall into. Well the thing is these other uh you know, neo-pagan and uh, Wiccan and you know forms of of spirituality, if I could use that that word, uh, are not even trying to pretend. It is really about your will. And it is about your will being done. And it is about your curiosity being satisfied. And it's about your itch being scratched. If I were to try to kind of encapsulate or kind of summarize the different qualities of, you know, these uh, occult practices that are that are on the rise. I would I would break it down, you know, in terms of based on the reading, and I've read about five or six articles on this. I, I would say that it's a will to power, it's a will to knowledge, and it's a I call it, you know, spirituality as an accessory, or kind of the consumer mentality attached to religion or applied to religion. So Occult practice as and witchcraft as a, a will to power. What, what many of the articles talk about. And this is kind of where the political 
kind of element that I don't want to get too deep into, but kind of where the where the political element of this fits in is that that quite often uh, these practices have been adopted by people who feel marginalized in society and feel powerless. Uh, this is a way to gain control and uh, kind of gain control over their destiny and even to have an effect on the broader society, as I said, because there are, again, those who use these things for political purposes, those who put uh, you know spells on presidents and Supreme Court justice nominees uh, in particular. Uh, it's an attempt in a way also to control others. And, you know, others, again, you could say, you know, I, I mean, there were at least one uh, practitioner in one of those articles who talked about the fact that she doesn't do love potions and that's all a bunch of hooey and stuff like that. Uh, but I have heard, I mean, anecdotal, anecdotally, I know, you know, that there are, you know, that is a practice, uh, putting uh, love potions, uh, love uh, spells on people and love potions and stuff like that. Uh, so there is there there is an attempt to uh, manipulate and control others, and to control reality. And at the bottom of it, it is a will to power. The the prayer that our Lord gave us at the very beginning of it, after we we hallow His name and say that His name may, should be blessed, we say that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. okay. It's about surrender. Following Christ is about surrender and about trust. And it's about understanding that we're not going to be, that it's giving up control. That's the key to fulfillment. It's not trying to grasp onto it and hold onto it, but to trust God and to where he sends you. And to deal each day with life as it comes. And yes, there's initiative, and we should take initiative, and it's good to have dreams, and it's good to have goals, and it's good to have desires, and, you know, a, a, a vision of your future, and to work toward it. But it's always within this context that, you know, maybe what you want isn't really good for you. Maybe what you want really isn't in line with really what God wants for you, and that God, God maybe knows better than we do. And yes, we, we live a political life. We're, we're all citizens of a polity and of our, of our nation, and we have the normal uh, you know, avenues uh, through which to express our, our political uh, opinions and, and uh, promote our political causes. Uh, but it's ultimately knowing that it's it's a give and take, and that sometimes you win and sometimes you lose, and uh, there's a lot worse things in life than losing. <laughs> that even in losing, you know, you'll 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 be around to fight another day, and to you know uh, to promote the cause. And if the cause is truly good and right and just, I you know I'm I'm one of those idealistic ones that think eventually it will prevail, maybe not in my lifetime, maybe not uh, in your lifetime, uh, but that eventually, yes, uh, if you can convince enough people, and you can convince enough people of its goodness, and its goodness is, is genuine, I think you, know, you, you, you will be able to move minds and hearts, uh, but that in, in a way, trying to you know, use occult power 
and really forces of evil in the end uh, are counterproductive and will come back on you. It's an attempt to gain a hidden knowledge, uh, to know our own destiny, to know of hidden things. It's sort of connected with Gnosticism. Okay, Gnosticism was a an early, you know, uh, Christian era, you know, late antiquity, early Christian era, you know, philosophy that in part held that there's a there's a hidden knowledge only open to a few. It's sometimes referred to as esoteric knowledge that's only open to a few, and that uh, you know only the select are able to access this knowledge, which will lead to you know happiness. I don't know if they would use the word salvation exactly, but uh, happiness and, and fulfillment. And, you know, Christianity is, no, there is a public knowledge. There is public revelation. It's open to everybody. Uh, you know, when we do catechesis, how we, how we explain doctrine and how we explain revelation, let's say, to young people is going to depend on what their age is, much like, you know, you don't teach a first grader calculus. Uh, we wouldn't necessarily go into the, the deep deeper meanings of what the Trinity means <laughs> and the aspirations of the Holy Spirit with a, with a second grader or a first grader. Uh, at the same time, we preach and teach that, you know, God is a Trinity, that Jesus is, is the Lord, that he is Emmanuel, he is God with us. And as we grow, we, we come to comprehend and understand better, both on a human level and then, you know, on the, the, in the life of grace that God gives us. But it's it's not seeking toward knowledge which is beyond us. St. Paul, in, in one of his letters, kind of warns uh, his readers not to be overly preoccupied, for instance, with the nature of the resurrection and what the, what the life of the resurrection is going to be like. God hasn't told us. <laughs> we don't know exactly. And just we know that we're going to, you know, be raised from the dead. We're going to have a glorified body. The you know what what how Jesus lived after the resurrection and you know how the apostles experienced him and the disciples experienced him and witnessed him is an indication to us you know how we're going to live you know in 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 the in the glorified body, but it's not something we should be overly preoccupied with. Okay, there is no hidden knowledge. <laughs> the gospel is quite clear and it's free for all those who want to know it and want to accept it. Uh, there is also, and this I find very sad, is there are people who want to try to contact the dead. Now, I know my, our, our Protestant brothers and sisters, many of them, especially evangelicals, have a real, real aversion to this type of thing. They call it, uh, I don't know what they call it, ne not necromancy. I think I'm trying to think of the word, but you know, the, the idea of trying to conjure the dead is something very, very repellent to them, as it as it should be. <laughs> to be to be perfectly honest with you, uh, but I, I think with with the mistake they make though is to think that the veneration we give to the saints somehow is conjuring the dead, and it's not. It's it's a different thing altogether. All we're asking the saints to do is to pray for us. We, we do not attempt to conjure saints. 
to come into our presence. Uh, we we do not consult with saints in order to try to get information out of them. There are times when on God's initiative, either the Blessed Mother or another saint or even our Blessed Lord, if we think about Margaret Mary Alacoque, will appear to someone in what we call an apparition in order to give a message uh, and but that but that is not the same thing as conjuring is this is an initiative of God if you know I try to do that if I try to you know conjure a saint and I try to you know have uh, you know perform some type of a, a prayer or you know kind of quasi seance trying to get a saint to visit me well I, I might actually get a spiritual being visiting me, but it, it's probably not going to be that saint. It's most likely going to be a, a demon masquerading as the saint. And then that becomes into infect my life and our life and just all sorts of bad things happen. But there are people who, who do try to... So again, the, the, the veneration we give to saints is just different categorically from you know trying to conjure the dead. That's not what we're trying to do at all with that. Again, everything is on God's initiative, not on our own. And there are those who don't have patience, they don't have trust, they've lost a loved one, and they, you know, they, you know, go to either go to seances or go to mediums or go to whoever, palm readers or whatever. People who read tea leaves. I know a girl in college who read coffee grounds. Uh you know, to in order to you know tell a person's fortune and, and future, but they'll go to these people to try to get in contact their their dead relatives. And really, it's it's a it's first off, it's a dead end because you don't know what you're getting. Most likely, you're not getting your dead relative. Most likely, you are getting a demon. And at the same time, it's just showing great mistrust of God. Trust in God. Pray for your dead relative. If you really feel a hurt, if you really feel like maybe you hurt the person who died, you know how you, you know how you make up for it? Pray for the person. Pray a rosary for them. Have a mass offered for them. Okay? That's how you, you kind of try to make it up for them. Okay? Say, you know, do those things. Fast a little bit, maybe. Give up a give up a meal and offer up that those pains of hunger for you know those people who are uh, are you know in purgatory, and you know what? If your relative, God bless, is already in heaven, it's okay because those prayers and those intentions will go to somebody who needs it. Okay, it's a, it's really kind of as simple as that. But remember, the contact we have with the other side is always on God's initiative. It's never on our own, and even then, we need to be careful. You know, John of the Cross or or Teresa of Avila would tell you that just because, you know, an apparition appears to you out of the blue, don't trust it automatically. Uh, you know, there's the famous story of, of Teresa who, uh, you know, was in her cell in, in, the, in the monastery and, you know, this figure appears before her claiming to be Jesus and demanding that, that she, you know, bow down and worship him. And she goes, you're not Jesus. Get out of here. 
And this, you know, this apparition continued to insist on the fact that he was Jesus and you have to bow down and, and worship me. And she was equally insistent that, no, you're not. And I'm not going to worship you and you need to get out of here. And then finally, after this back and forth for a little bit, the the specter, you know, admits, no, I'm not, I'm not really Jesus. I'm, you know, I'm the devil. <laughs> and how did you know? <laughs> and Mary and uh, Teresa said, because you, your hands and feet don't have the marks of Jesus. Jesus always appears with the marks of his crucifixion. And you're too proud to do that because that would show, in your mind, that would show weakness. And Jesus is not afraid to show his weakness. And in fact, never afraid to show what he did to save us. And uh, then the thing disappeared, you know, from her from her sight. And so, yeah, so you and you know, and John you know, less dramatically, John on the cross less dramatically would just say, "You just gotta like don't." His thing was that if a, if an apparition comes, you just ignore it, or just if if God really is trying to communicate with you, he'll he'll. He'll get the message through to you. And in fact, in a way, God is is happy if you don't believe those apparitions quite so quickly. Uh, you know, there's a story of uh, of Bernadette Subaru, who you know famously had the apparitions of Mary at Lourdes in France. And you know, initially, you know, when she came back after the first time, she brought a little a little bottle of holy water with her and started when the you know the Blessed Mother appeared. She started, you know, uh, sprinkling the area with holy water and telling the, you know, telling this apparition to disappear. And from what uh, Teresa, or not Teresa, what um, Bernadette said is that actually the Blessed Mother kind of smiled and kind of laughed a little bit, and but a, a loving smile and and a pre, but a, you know, and it was an appreciation. All right, well, she wasn't laughing at Bernadette, but kind of. It was more of a sign of appreciation and approval that yeah, no, you're doing the right thing. You're doing the right thing. Don't don't believe these things too too quickly. Um, so trust, having trust in God, having trust that He will guide us. You know, if we trust in Him, things aren't always going to go our way, and sometimes things might be you know downright tragic in our lives. Let's just be real about it. Uh, but that it's that trust in God that is the most important, and that really is what carries us through. And then, yeah, this kind of spirituality as an accessory. Uh, you know, one of the articles talked about that for a lot of uh, young people who kind of dabble in these things, that's exactly what they're doing. They're dabbling. They would not really consider themselves Wiccans, or they would not consider themselves neo pagans, or they, you know, they wouldn't. Consider themselves a part of one, you know, one group or another. But what they would, you know, say is that okay, this is just you know a little spiritual activity I'm doing. Uh, again, that I'm that I'm dabbling in. So as you know, one of the articles said, the person might you know go to church, you know, on a on a holiday with the family, and then you know the next day you know be a part of a seance, and the you know the following after that uh, have a uh, a charmed candle made and burned for a certain you know intention that they're they're doing and cleanse you know the following they cleanse their house with sage and you know other other aromatic herbs and and all that stuff and that this is just a part of a grab bag of of spiritualities and it's a 
you know, not anything that they're committed to, because you really don't have to be, you know, in their mind committed to anything. It's just something useful. It's something, again, it's a way of, of having their will done. And, you know, if they want something, they want it now, just like, and just like they would go to a store in order to buy a product they wanted. They, and, you know, give money and get their product. So they give their money, do their little, whatever, their little ritual thing, and then they expect uh, whatever that they ask for in return. Okay, be it be it money, be it a job, be it uh, whatever it, it it happens to be. It's it's a very transactional, almost uh, relationship that they have. And again, people within the church can have this transactional mentality also. And quite frankly, the the church doesn't always, I think, do a good job at uh, dispelling <laughs> the idea that this should be a transactional thing. Uh, but anyway, well, that's maybe something for another time. But, you know, again, it, it, it feeds into our, again, our consumer mentality. Sometimes you might call it a, uh, a cafeteria mentality that I can pick and choose between things. I really don't have to commit to anything in particular. It, it feeds into our desire for immediate gratification. And really that, that paradise and fulfillment can be found in this life. There really is no, no view toward the life to come. And, and that's really what I think is kind of the saddest thing of all. And again, I think as, as a church, I don't think we've done a good job in certain ways. I, I think it's good that the church puts forward her social doctrine and her, her social teaching. And you know, sometimes the 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 social teaching of the church has been called the church's best kept secret, and in a, in a lot of ways, it is. And it's something good, and it's something that should be promoted. Uh, but there are those who are so zealous in promoting the church's social teaching that they will say they they really kind of give in to the Marxist, uh, an, you know, an analysis, even if they're not really Marxist themselves. Uh, still, this idea that we, you know, we 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 shouldn't talk so much about heaven, and we shouldn't talk so much about the life to come when there's so many problems here on earth. We need to be living here and now, and committed to here and now, and not worrying about, you know, that you know that we shouldn't be so worried about the life to come. That that kind of is an opiate, and it keeps you know the the focusing on on the life to come and on on our life on high with Christ. Uh, makes us complacent about you know life here on earth, and you know we ignore the the social problems and the great evils that need to be combated here and now. And I think that's an unfortunate that's an unfortunate opinion uh, because I you know young people we over the last fifty years we have we have really and especially in the last ten years we've definitely pushed the church's social doctrine, uh, especially to our young people. And in terms of our curriculum in schools, and you know what, young people are still choosing other spiritual paths. Uh, we're trying not to be the opiate of the people, but we are trying to, you know, vivify society and transform society. And they're saying, "Yeah, but uh, maybe I I can do that somewhere else. <laughs> I don't. If if all my life is here on Earth." And if 
life on earth is all that really matters. Well, I can do that without having to give up my power and without having to surrender to God and with not having to worry about God's will being done. Uh, because if you really do take the church's path, if you take certainly Christ's path, social change will come, but it will come at a much slower pace. And why do we want to go at a much slower pace? Why do we want to uh, you know, place ourselves in danger, quite frankly, and, and you know, put, put ourselves in a position where we're powerless when we could actually grab power and take power and control power? Why do we have to trust in God when we can trust in ourselves? So in today's mentality, in, in today's society, that's a very powerful way of thinking. And I, I think we, without denying the social teaching, and certainly not, I'm not suggesting that we put it on a shelf at all, it still needs to be there, it still needs to be promoted, I think think we need to remember these other aspects that uh, you know no one gets out of this life alive all of us uh, one day will will leave this world and we will be judged by god and really what will will be judged on isn't so much the 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 sins we've committed though you know that too uh, but how did we use the gifts we were given? And did we really trust in God? And did we did we really or did we trust in ourselves? And did we trust in human powers? And we, did we trust in human uh, institutions and human ideologies? And did we really trust in God, or did we uh, try to manipulate God and try to turn to other false gods? Okay, in order, you know, spiritual false gods, meaning spiritual other spiritual powers, in order to exact our own will, rather than surrendering ourselves to God. Did we try to find the quick fix and the immediate fix instead of taking the long road and what could be a hard road? And did we have confidence really in God and His plan for us? And did we have confidence in, in Jesus Christ and really allow him into our lives to transform our lives? And that true empowerment comes when we surrender, when we surrender to the Lord, when he makes that invitation to us and we follow where he leads us. Whether that means leading us to the married life where we're called to surrender ourselves to our spouse, and to dedicate our life to our family in Christ's name, or whether it's to the religious life where we're called to renounce marriage in order to surrender to the community and to give ourselves completely to Christ in the name of serving his community and his people, or to the priesthood, or to, again, I mentioned religious life, or somehow even in the single life, using our time and our energy and, you know, whatever our fortunes, if you will, for lack of a better term, in order to better our, our brothers and sisters and to really, yes, form a society which is in conformity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
and to to really live his love and to exact true transformation, not merely political, not merely social, but really a change of hearts and minds that we all may be united to God and that his will truly will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm going to end this right here. I hope this was enlightening in some way. You know, next coming up, this is ends up again being kind of a long. This is going to be a kind of a long episode, and the next ep- the next segment on uh, kind of the, those who have passed away in the last couple of months is going to be kind of long, also longer than I anticipated because I'm mentioning more people than I thought I was going to be talking about, but. Um, That'll do. Yes, that'll do for this. I'm sure I'll re- revisit this in some way in the future. But uh, you know, hopefully, this has been somewhat helpful and somewhat uh, enlightening. And now, uh, our next segment on those we have lost. So, I've got some uh, obituaries that have sort of piled up over the last month and a half or so that I haven't gotten to, mainly because you know we got kind of caught up with the Novena to Don Bosco and, you know, talking about all things Salesian. And we're going to continue to talk about all things Salesian, certainly as the uh, the year progresses, especially in relation to Dominic, I was going to say Dominic Savio. We'll talk about Dominic Savio too. But I'm thinking of Francis de Sales more uh, in particular as the year goes on to continue to celebrate the 400th anniversary of his death. But, um, uh, yeah, I just wanted to talk about a few, you know, I think people that are kind of important to the culture and maybe noteworthy. And I'm kind of going in chronological order. So back uh, on December 23rd, uh, Joan Didion passed away. She was a uh, a journalist, an essay writer. Uh, she is generally associated with what's called the new journalism movement uh, of the uh, the. 60s and and 70s and uh, her two books of essays that are probably the most famous one was uh, slouching toward bethlehem and the other uh, was called the white album and both were kind of reflections on the late 60s and you know things that were going on at at that time Uh, slouching toward bethlehem sort of is a book in real time it was the essays written between 65 and about 66 or 67. And the book was released in, in 68. Uh, the White Album wasn't released until uh, 1979. But again, I never have not read the White Album. Uh, but I did read Slouching Toward uh, Bethlehem. And, uh, you know, it's interesting when people often ask me, what you know, what are my influences? What are my writing influences? Uh, you know, I always wish I could say that it's Chesterton or it's... Uh, you know, Flannery O'Connor or somebody like that, some great, you know, Catholic writers. Uh, but actually, it's it's the new journalists, the, the specifically um, uh, Hunter Thompson and uh, Tom Wolfe. And I would have to kind of throw Joan Didion in there, even though I didn't discover uh, Didion until later, until maybe about four or five years ago. Uh, but uh, but definitely their, their style and their approach, uh, if not their... You know, worldview, and certainly in the case of a of a Hunter Thompson and even a Joan Didion, I wouldn't say that their worldview I share at all. 
but uh, but I appreciated their method, and it did sort of you know soak in. So basically, what, what the new journalism was was to to put the writer in the middle of the action, and it kind of blurred the lines a little bit between journalism and fiction writing, nonfiction and fiction writing, to one degree or another. Uh, you know, Thompson definitely uh, stretched those boundaries. You, know, you never really knew what Thompson was making up and what what was real and, and what was the product of some deranged uh, chemical-induced uh, trip that he was on. Uh, you know, Diddy and, and Wolf both pretty much uh, had their feet on the ground. You know, Tom Wolf, uh, uh, while he didn't go off into flights of fancy, definitely everything he was seeing was going through a filter, and he knew it was going through the filter of his mind and his point of view. I think Didion, while that was true also, I think and she was a little more, a bit more objective, but objective is really not the key to the new journal, <laughs> the new journalism. It's it's this subjective, putting the writer in the middle. The, the writer is either a part of the action or the action is definitely going on around them. What, what a new journalist is not is someone standing on the outside looking in as a passive observer. But one who is right in the middle of everything. And I think the other thing that I, the thing that I appreciated about uh, about Diddy in her, in her writing is that you know again, I would not agree with her on many things. We would definitely, I would definitely have. I mean, she was an atheist, which so right off the bang, bang right off the bat, we we don't agree. But she saw things, and she said what she saw. And sometimes what she saw wasn't very pleasant. And she wasn't going to finesse it in order to please uh, her audience, uh, or her perceived audience anyway, or perceived allies. Uh, the, the central essay to Slouching Toward Bethlehem really deals with Haight-Ashbury in 1967. And what she sees there is disturbing. Uh, you know, she'll have other essays where she's more favorable toward the counterculture, but definitely in this one, she lets you know that this is really not good. You know, we're talking about 15, 16 year olds abandoned by their families, runaways, in some cases run away, and the family really has no interest in, in finding out where they are. In some cases, uh, kids who came home one day and their parents had moved and didn't leave any forwarding address. And it's a story of dislocation. It's a story of drug abuse. I think it's in a more veiled way of sexual exploitation, though she doesn't really go into too much detail on that. But I, I think if you if you read between the lines, it's there as well. Um, it's it's a disturbing picture. It's a disturbing picture of, of something that's normally or very, quite often kind of glorified or romanticized. There's no... It's Hate Ashbury without the without the romance, and again, she's uh, a bit of a countercultural person herself. She uh, one of the essays there in in that collection has to do with Joan Baez and her attempt to uh, found an alternate school for for children in her community there in Northern California, and it's a, it's a, it's a rather positive essay, and, a, and you know, it's sort of taking. Uh, it's taking sides in a way, but in a subtle, maybe in a, in a subtle way or not so subtle way, 
uh, with with Baez on on that project. So this is not some you know wild eye conservative, uh, but this is someone who didn't let ideology uh, get in the way of really you know telling the truth and seeing what she saw and saying it and and reporting it honestly. And I think that that's something that's missing today. I think things are so ideologically divided that people's really opinions are not made made by actually looking at reality and reporting what they see, but by always seeing it through always seeing it through a lens. And not even necessarily a personal lens, but an ideological lens, which I think is even more kind of dangerous. But anyway, uh, you know, my prayer is obviously that Joan uh you know found God before she passed, but who knows? Who knows? But there was also a lot of sadness in that life and so we pray for her. I, I can't get away without talking about Betty White, obviously, who passed away on uh, on uh, January 31st, excuse me, on uh, December 31st. Um, you know, Betty kind of had a, a, a career in reverse. You know, she's a, a kind of a C-lister <laughs> when she was young, who became an A-lister when she was in her 80s and 90s, which is sort of unusual. Uh, you know, her big break came when she was 51 and she got the job, uh, or the part, excuse me, of, uh, Sue Ann Nivens on the Mary Tyler Moore show. And then later on when she was in her sixties, she, you know, became a big hit on Golden Girls and that ensemble cast and playing two very, very different characters. You know, Sue Ann Niven in, uh, in the Mary Tyler Moore show was this sort of two-faced, a little bit raunchy, uh, you know, sunshine and gold on the outside, but definitely larceny on the inside. And, uh, and you know, Rose uh, later on was this very innocent and transparent uh, person. Uh, and, you know, you loved both of them. And in, in the case of uh, Sue Ann, you loved her in spite of the fact that she was, you know, this sort of two-faced uh, creature. And Rose you just loved because she was Rose. And uh, she, yeah, she just grew in stature uh, <laughs> over the years rather than uh, as what sadly usually happens. People fade away as their, as their careers go on and as they get older. So maybe she's a, a reminder to us that, uh, you know what, good things do come to those who wait. And, uh, you know, who knows, maybe, uh, you know, 99 is the, is, you know, the new 30, I don't know, but <laughs> whatever you want to say, God bless her. Yeah. Said she didn't make that hundred, but you know, happy, happy that we had her happy that we had her. Uh, what took me by surprise was I was kind of, kind of going and looking for, you know, doing the research here was that Peter Bogdanovich the film director had passed away back on the 6th of, of, of January. Uh, you know, Bogdanovich was a film historian who got his start uh, as a critic, really, and a, and a film historian. Got to interview and know many of the, the giants of the old Hollywood and the so-called golden age of Hollywood. Uh, became sort of a protege of Orson Welles's and even that was a bit of a rocky, it became a rocky relationship. And I think some of that, you know, Bogdanovich, you know, he always accented the positive part of that. And he would say that, yeah, there was a little bit of a falling out, but I don't want to, he always said, I really don't want to, I'd rather remember the, the good things. 
you know, and it, it probably had something to do with jealousy and that Bogdanovich had, you know, a, a lot of great success very early in his career and, you know, Wells obviously, you know, had a much bumpier ride and uh, was sort of rejected by Hollywood. But uh, eventually did uh, become a movie director himself. He's probably best known uh, for The Last Picture Show, and you know, which was his first major uh, studio picture. And then really had three really big hits in a row, Last Picture Show, uh, uh, What's Up Doc, and uh, Paper Moon. And then sort of uh, had three kind of bombs in a row. Uh, films that weren't as well received, and you know, uh, you know, let's say in 1975, you would have talked about Bogdanovich in the same breath as a as a Francis Ford Coppola, or an Arthur Penn, or you know, some of the other, you know, big you know Hollywood new Hollywood directors at the time, and then by 1980, he was sort of uh, already considered by some a has been. Uh, even though he did have other successes after that, Mask in 1985 uh, proved to be a very successful film uh, with Cher. And, uh, you know, if I, I recommend anything of his, he did a great documentary, uh, originally from 1969, uh, called Directed by John Ford, which is a documentary about the director John Ford. And... Uh, then in the mid two thousands, he sort of revisited it and kind of did a recut of it and added material and added interviews. And you know, if you're if you're a film buff, if you're a film if you you know kind of like old movies, and even though he would hate me using that term, old movie, uh, he just talked about movies. Uh, it's really a great it's really a great uh, watch uh, directed by John Ford. And again, I. I you know, he's someone who had a great appreciation for the tradition, a great appreciation for, you know, movie making and where it all came from and the influences. And, you know, sometimes critics are criticized that or criticize themselves because, well, they can talk about it, but they don't do it. Well, he's someone who both talked about it, wrote about it, and did it, and did it very well. And, you know, much like Joan Didion, he's someone who I always had this feeling, you know, watching interviews with him, and his, his interviews themselves are really spectacular. If you, you know, he, he does one at Hillsdale College that I find kind of funny, because he, Bogdanovich, you know, he was uncensored. He would use four-letter, you know, words, not gratuitously, but he would use, you know, four-letter words that were not love in his presentations. And him at you know, Hillsdale College is a pretty conservative place. It's, it's kind of funny. At least for me, anyway, to watch that. But he, uh, you know, he's someone who uh, he talks about it because he knows it, and he's talked to the people. He's he talked to the witnesses, if you will. And what's also funny about them is he imitates them, and he actually does a pretty good job of imitating them. Uh, people like uh, you know even Marlena Dietrich doing an impersonation of Mar Marlena Dietrich that is both endearing, not over the top, and strangely accurate. <laughs> um, so Peter Bogdanovich. So yeah. Someone who I yeah ad admire greatly, and again always had this sort of yeah kind of cloud of sadness around him. Very turbulent personal life, and so I pray that he's in a, a more peaceful, happy place. And again, that he came to peace with the Lord somehow before he he went. And then you know finishing up Meatloaf. Yes, Meatloaf. 
for those of you rock and roll fans out there like myself. Born Marvin Lee Aday. Uh, he died last week at the age of 74. Uh, the the the, uh, the nickname Meatloaf uh, he got when he was a teenager because he was so skinny. No, he was he was incredibly large, at least during his heyday. He did he lost a lot of weight, but he still was heavy. Let's put it that way. I think in his heyday in the late seventies, he was he clocked in at around three hundred and sixty pounds or something like that. Uh, I mean, eventually he got it under well under 300, but he was still always a big guy. He was still always, you know, larger than life. A booming kind of operatic voice. He's best known for the uh, album, uh, you know, Bad Out of Hell, which is a a collaboration with uh, songwriter Jim Steinman. And uh, really, he musically, he never really had a success outside of... Uh, his collaborations with Steinman, seventy uh, seven, it was Bad Out of Hell, and then in the early nineties, it was uh, Bad Out of Hell two, which again, uh, music written by Steinman, and there was a bit of a kind of a tension in that relationship because originally the album was supposed to be credited to both of them, but the record company uh, felt that you know Meatloaf was the more marketable individual and the bigger personality and so they so the album was by him which again fair or unfair it's the way it goes but um he also really his really his uh metier if you will uh was to be an actor it really was his desire and his call he was a uh, really a big into into theater when he was in college high school and college and was involved with the Rocky Horror Picture Show, kind of came up through there. I think he was on a, one of the local productions of Hair. And uh, got, you know, with through Rocky Horror, got kind of teamed up with uh, with Steinman and uh, produced this album, this very kind of operatic and theatrical album uh, that was huge. I mean, uh, it just, it's, it, you know, we don't have it today in our popular culture. Uh you know, music just isn't what it used to be, and you don't have those kind of galvanizing uh, singles or albums anymore. And and I think Bad Out of Hell sold something like forty eight million copies worldwide, something crazy like that. Like it never left the charts in England or something. Something kind of, kind of, you know, something kind of crazy like that. And it was if you were a kid in the in the late seventies, it was one of those albums that you can you know songs that you couldn't escape. Uh, he had over 50 uh, uh, movie credits, which I found kind of surprising. I knew that he had done some acting, but uh, but he yeah many many uh, film credits to his to his uh, on his list, and uh, probably his probably best known role. They were all supporting roles or cameos, but the, uh, the his uh, part in Fight Club. Is probably his best known uh, movie appearance. Where he, again, it's a it's a small role, it's a, it's a supporting role, but it's still a very popular one or very important one. Excuse me, for the story and, and for the plot. And so, yeah, we uh, he you know professed to be a Christian and you know believe in believe in the Lord. And so again, we pray for him and pray that you know for the pros of his soul and for the consolation of his family. And uh, just a personal. 
story on on meatloaf you know a reason why i mention him is you know my you know my brothers and i all worked at our family store we had a my father had a uh a um, fruit and vegetable store, a produce store. And we go down early in the morning to the market, to the what, what was the Bronx Terminal Market next to Yankee Stadium. It no longer exists. And we'd, you know, we'd play the radio. He'd let us, you know, one way we chose the station, and on, I think on the way back he chose the station. So the radio's on. And they're playing uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I'm a teenager. It's, you know, this, the album's been out a while, actually. It's, it's again, I was a teenager. It's probably in the 80s. But it's being played on the radio. And, you know, for those of you familiar with the song, it's, you know, about a guy, you know, guy and a girl in a car. And the guy's trying to get the girl to do something that you should only do after you're married. And the girl is kind of resisting, and the guy is trying, kind of insisting, and the girl finally says, you know, we, you know, if you marry me, <laughs> if you say you'll love me forever, uh, then you know we can we can talk about it. And uh, finally, the man acquiesces and says, "Yes, I I'll love you to the end of time. I'll marry you. I'll you know take you away. I'll make you my wife." And you know, so I'll you know so the the, the song ends with uh, you know now I'm praying for the end of time. So hurry up and arrive, because if I've got to spend another minute with you, I don't think I can really survive. And you know, my, I was you know, you, I was never sure. We we were never sure if my father was actually listening to the music or not, or listening to the songs, because he hated rock and roll. <laughs> he hated rock music. He thought it was you know, if he ever opened his mouth, usually it was to criticize. Uh, you know, my other brother has a funny story about Neil Young, who's been in the news lately. But how my father heard Neil Young and went, how this guy get a job <laughs> they actually put this guy on the radio uh but they get to that line of that and my father starts cracking up laughing he thought it was the funniest thing in the world now i'm praying for the end of time and part of it because it was for him was so unex it was an unexpected twist <laughs> he got the irony let's put it that way he got the irony and he, he thought it was yeah he thought it was the funniest thing in the world so i don't know it's a small little story, but it's, you know, something that, that stuck with me and a happy memory that, uh, happy memory between myself and my father, courtesy of, of Meatloaf. <laughs> okay. So really, as I, you know, said before, these are four very different people, four very different backgrounds. I don't know what their relationship was with the Lord. And I, I, well, I hope and pray that they did have one. I hope at least maybe they found one, uh, at the end. And, you know, together let us pray a Hail Mary for them. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Eternal rest grant unto them, O Lord, and the perpetual light shine upon them. May their souls and the souls of all the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so moving on next, we'll talk about what the algorithm sent me. 
So yes, another edition of our continuing series, What the Algorithm Sent Me. And what the algorithm sent me and is continuing to send me is advertisements. And you might say, well, of course they send you advertisements. Whether you're on YouTube or you're on Twitter, or you're on Facebook, almost any uh, platform that you're on, websites that you go to, you're constantly getting bombarded by advertisements. And oftentimes, increasingly, I think a little spookily, is that a word, spookily? I find it spooky, <laughs> okay, that they target these ads to you. Uh, and obviously, there's, you know, there's, again, the algorithm behind it and, you know, based on what you've searched for and da 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 and... We can get into all the uh, theories about is the you know is the microphone listening to you even when you don't have a or is the camera watching you even when you don't have them open and on <laughs> is there still is there are there third parties uh, watching you I'm not going to get into that I I you know I know people who cover up the camera on their computer I know other people who are you know somewhat computer literate more computer literate and tech literate than I am that tell me that it would be way too complicated to do that that it's really not possible to do it in the way that you know some people have suggested that it would just like I said it would just be way too too complicated and and you're not worth it basically for them to go to the effort what the truth is I don't know I just know that uh I have been targeted uh, by an overabundance of online gambling uh, advertisements, different uh, online sports books that uh, I will not mention their name. Don't want to give them any free plugs. Normally, this section would be reserved for people I want to promote. This is not so much something I want to promote, but yeah, I do find it a little disturbing. And I, I get it. You know, if this was happening moderately, I probably wouldn't think about it too much. But it's it's understandable. Uh, I'm a resident of the Empire State, and I guess recently New York has uh, permitted uh, online gambling to uh, go forward uh, here. And uh, so, yeah, we're a large untapped market previously, I guess. Or I guess if you were in New York and you wanted to do online sports betting, I guess there was other ways you had to kind of go around I, again, I don't know how you know. I do not know how the interwebs work exactly, and how they would limit it state to state. But whatever, I get it. You can gamble now in New York online, and they want you to know the good news about that. And again, uh, you know, to be clear, uh, the Catholic view toward gambling is similar to the Catholic view on uh, drinking adult beverages which is that it's neutral. Uh, you know, to take gambling, you know, gambling is just viewed as a form of entertainment. Other Christian groups have moral issues with gambling, what they would call games of chance. Uh, Catholics really don't, and it would be certainly hypocritical of me uh, considering I'm in a parish that has had bingo and plans to have bingo again in the future. Uh, and, you know, many Catholic parishes over the years uh, have different events like casino nights and bingo and raffles, which, let's face it, raffling is a, is a form of, of gambling. You're putting your, you're leaving it up to chance uh, if your name's going to get picked out of the uh, hopper or not. Um, and so, yeah, it's not so much that I'm saying this out of condemnation. And as I said, if it was just a, a moderate number of ads I was getting, I, 
wouldn't really probably think much about it. But it does seem like wherever I go, uh, whatever video that I click on on YouTube and whatever, uh, you know, even, you know, scrolling through my Facebook uh, news feed or uh, if I'm on Twitter or even just online, let's say on a news site, uh, quite often I am being confronted uh, with gambling videos. And I, I, I do find it a little off-putting. Now, you know, gambling is not my thing. It's never been my thing. I'm not tempted by it. And But my attitude is also the same as it is toward liquor. You know, uh, again, we're good Catholics. We have nothing against a glass of wine once in a while. Uh, again, drinking is generally seen as something neutral. Uh, in fact, the Bible, the Old Testament, proclaims that wine is a gift from God to cheer men's hearts. So as long as it's done in moderation, you know, it's not considered uh, a problem. And the same as gambling. If gambling is just a, a form of entertainment for you, and it's something that you, you know, just, you know, someone might, you know, if, you know, someone might pay $100 to go to a, I know $100 is way too low, but I'm just, just amuse me here. You know, you, you might spend $100 on a night out, you know, I don't know, to a, a movie and dinner or to the theater and dinner. Uh, okay, you're going to spend $100 at the casino. And who knows, maybe you'll come back with a couple extra dollars in your pocket to boot. That's nice. It's, that's not an issue. Now, if you're continuing, if you continue to drink, <laughs> if you don't just stop with a couple of social drinks, uh, but you continue to drink excessively and then go home after the party and finish the job off by drinking even more, and if you find yourself spending all sorts of money on on liquor, and you find yourself doing things like hiding liquor bottles around the house, well, maybe you've got a problem. And now maybe you know alcohol is a moral evil that needs to be has become a moral evil that needs to leave, you know be removed from your life. And it's the same thing with gambling. If it's something that you can do in moderation, you can go with you know, whatever amount of money that you've pre decided that you're going to to wager. And you don't wager anymore, and you're not wagering money that is supposed to be used on the rent or on the milk money or for your kid's education. It's not a problem. But if you find yourself in debt and you find uh, large knuckle-dragging you know, men confronting you in alleyways wanting to know where their money is or they'll break your thumbs, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you have a problem. And maybe you do really need, and all joking aside, you know, in both cases— uh, you know, these are problems that do need to be taken care of. Now, I understand we're dealing with issues of addiction. This is not strictly a moral, you know, neither case of, of gambling or, you know, alcoholism necessarily, you know, purely speaking constitutes a, a moral failure. Uh, but certainly there is, at the very least, you know, personal morality involved. And a person does have a responsibility to seek help. Okay, as they're able to seek help and to to begin that that road to uh, recovery. So again, I'm not I'm not condemning gambling in this particular case uh, outright or as such, but there there is something uh, off putting about it to me. Just this constant barrage, and you know I and I'm not really can't put my finger on it. Maybe this is where I I want your help, and maybe you you can maybe you know. You know, write in the comments uh, what your thoughts on this is. Uh, you know, for, you know, for me, again, it it would be the same if I was getting bombarded by advertisements for for liquor. 
it would be why are why are people being bombarded with with advertisements for 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 liquor? Are we trying to you know draw people? We're trying to create drinking problems where they don't necessarily exist already. Uh, we're trying to create gambling problems where they don't necessarily uh, you know are already. Is it trying to lure people? You know, is it just another form of the bread and circuses of keeping people distracted from what's really going on in the world by having them caught up in these kind of trivial, you know, trivial things like like ball games and uh, you know having them also in, invest money that might be better invested in other places in this kind of frivol- frivolous sort of uh, uh, you know kind of can be wasteful, you know, uh, a wasteful pastime. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, and again, gambling is not my deal. I get it. And I know people who enjoy going to the casino and are able to, you know, keep it under control and, you know, do it within, within, you know, proper boundaries. But there's just something, again, something I put off, I find off-putting, but at the same time, I've had a hard time putting my finger on why exactly. And that's something where I would, um, yeah, ask for your help in your perspective and what your thoughts on that are. Um, so that'll do it for the algorithm. <laughs> for what the algorithm sent me. Uh, stay tuned for more of the Axe Podcast. Okay, everybody, that'll do it for this, uh, for this episode. Uh, again, a little long, sorry for it. Uh, I try, do try to keep these things under an hour when I can. Uh, but it ended up, again, there's a lot of stuff I'm trying to make up for, for, for lost time. But again, I thank you for your indulgence. I'm thank you for listening. Even if you only listen to a couple of segments, it's fine. Uh, I, again, I appreciate it. Please, uh, you know, like, click, ring bells, do whatever it is that share, you know, if you like the, uh, the content here and would like more of it please please pass on the good news uh well always pass on the good news of jesus christ but you know if you like this please please pass it on and uh believe me god love all of you thank you very much please pray for me know that i'm praying for you and until next time god bless you bye-bye